Welcome to the MSA Podcast Production, a new digital media arts exploration of the Mississippi School of the Arts. Join us as we host interviews from within our state and abroad. Creative Expression, the flagship podcast program you're listening to right now, is the idea that every artist has the freedom to share their life story in their own unique way. In this podcast project, connect with our guests as they share their experiences, offer sound advice, and inspire us all. We encourage you to stay tuned to our podcast series as we incorporate this phase of digital media artistry into everyday life at Mississippi School of the Arts. You can launch our website at podcast.msabrookhaven.org where you can receive more information about our future programs as they become available. We are back and I have Ms. Clinicia Sibley. She is the Literary Arts Instructor here at the Mississippi School of the Arts. Clinicia, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. We're going to talk today just a little bit about your your career and how you got to MSA and what the programs are doing today. So we're just going to turn it over to you. So how did you get started? Yes, I was very, very young. Um, I always um, tell the story of my six-year-old self writing and producing a play in the living room at my at my home um, from Macomb, Mississippi. And um, I wrote my first play at the age of six. It was called The Littering Bunny Rabbits. And um, at that time, you know, I, you know, my, my company at that time was my sister and cousins. And uh, we performed the play in the living room. Um, so that was really just sort of me being totally immersed in artistic things. That's when I really tapped into my creativity and, um, and yeah, it was from there. I just went into, I I found myself writing poetry. Um, I was the poet, the young poet that people would, would invite to different community events and churches to, uh, to read poetry. And, um, and I, I I identified as a poet very young, and I also began writing more scripts. So by the age of twelve, I was um, putting on a play in the state theater in Macomb um, with the help of my my parents. I had very supportive parents, and once they saw that I was, you know, really serious um, and 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 very committed and consistent with the art they they really did um become invested so um so at 12 i had my first play uh produced on the stage and uh i directed that again that was just me really being fully committed to the art and i also had a book of uh, poetry published at that time so uh you know, I, I just uh, my my parents were involved and in that they were able to, you know, get a contact of a self-publisher. So we experienced self-publishing before it really became what it is now. You know, it's such such a, a, a an important thing for an artist right now and a writer to be able to self-publish or to have that option and to be able to own your uh and just to kind of be able to to own your product 100 percent so um yeah so we we had a a book self-published and and I just kept kept going stayed involved through high school 
and on into college. I can remember back when I was a kid, you know, you know, we didn't play video games. We're about the same age, so we didn't play video games. We stayed outside. Mm-hmm. We, yep. we, uh, yeah. we either drew a lot uh, with pen and paper or we rode bikes and played outside. And uh, I can remember going to different festivals when I was a kid. You gave a, a key experience here, parental support, and how important that is to, to have someone uh, to support you in the arts, you know, and and today that's extremely important, you know, especially as we see uh, the arts across the state, across the nation, kind of re-evolve mm-hmm. after uh, decades. You know, you have so much influence out there. You started at a young age and you uh, had a book published, which is very uh, unique because most people, uh, our kids, uh, wouldn't have that experience. And I think that is extremely great. So where did you... Uh, take off from after high school you went to college and then uh, what else happened um i i loved my college experience i i graduated from tougaloo i i entered tougaloo in 2002 and um it was such a, a wonderful uh cultural uh and intellectual experience for me i just you know, that was really where my my intellectual growth really did sort of peak at that moment. And I just I, I, I started writing. Um, I, I began to understand empathy more. And uh, I, I most I, I, I started really understanding um, our social responsibility as artists. And, and I think that was, you know, very um very very much because I was attending a historically black college um and and this and, and it was just socially stimulating uh we had so we it, even though it was the early 2000s we still didn't really have a lot of social we didn't have any social media really um it it began that's when MySpace kind of kicked in and and Facebook, but we were still talking, you know, we were still conversing and, um, and we were, we were, st- we were so attentive in class. I mean, class was different, you know, to be able to, to, to be engaged in the classroom was different. We just didn't have so many technology distractions with, with our devices and stuff. So, um, I think that college really what laid a foundation for me as a writer and, um, and I, I I was a, uh, a an interdisciplinary major, so I had the interest in theater, the interest in creative writing, and I was able to explore all of that. But I became a student of the human condition, and I just wanted to I just wanted to learn about you know I, I wanted to dissect the human spirit, and I knew that I could do that um through the humanities you know so not not necessarily theater even though I was a playwright not necessarily English you know because I was a creative writer but you know going into the humanities really just helped me to think it taught me how to be a critical thinker and how to use my creativity um in a way that would awaken the world so uh, so yeah, um, I, uh, college was great. I, I, um, also was a college queen. So it was just, it was great. A student leader. Um, I applied for a summer program, research program at the university of Arkansas. 
Uh, it was called the George Washington Carver Research Program. And so I found myself um, at, at the end of my junior year, going into my senior year, I found myself heading to Fayetteville, Arkansas. And I was there nearly two months. Um, and it was it was a little bit of a culture shock because it was summer and I didn't really get the full like experience of being uh, at a at a flagship university like that. But I, they did sell me on it, and it was a recruitment, uh, a recruitment program. So, um, in 2006, I graduated from uh, Tougaloo and did not take a break. Went right into um, the graduate program at the University of Arkansas in Fayetteville, and um, that was me going into their theater program, playwriting. I, I went. I applied for the MFA in playwriting. And um, I became the uh, the first uh, African African American uh, student to graduate from that program, from that MFA playwriting program in the drama department. That is amazing. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, talking about theater, you know, that kind of brings something to mind. How important it is for uh, writers to be in the spotlight for a theater. You know, you have. Um, different plays that take on in uh, Broadway and and uh, little theaters around the country and movie sets and different things. Um, so I, I kind of believe that writers are, uh, and script writers and screenwriters are a little under uh, underprivileged, under-recognized, I guess, I don't know. It's, it's um, every medium that we explore is, I mean, it's just, it's, it's very competitive, um, and I think of all the mediums, um, I do think that playwriting is is the hardest. Um, there's, you know, there's a lot of uh, a lot of glam that that kind of you you imagine that if you if you make it as a playwright or as a screenwriter, you know that there's you know a lot of a lot of uh, perks associated with that. It, but um, I think that. I think that um, the struggle of of a writer is is really the struggle of a writer. It's um it's hard in you know with any particular genre that you're interested in. Um, the one thing about playwriting it, when it comes to craft is it's the one that it's the the type of writing that looks the most different. Um, everything else you know is is kind of similar in sort of its in in how you in how it lives on the paper. But writing a script, um, which is why we have a class uh, here at MSA uh, completely de dedicated to playwriting, uh, because writing a script is is so different than anything else that the students will write. And um, and it's 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 almost it almost has it's the it's creative, but it's technical in how it lives on the paper. So. Um, and screenwriting and playwriting are completely different. And a lot of people, um, there's this notion, and it is a notion that if you want to be a playwright, that you'll be better off in New York or Chicago. And if you want to write screenplays, that you're better off in in L.A. Um, and you know maybe New York. But like geographically, like people try to like relegate writers to certain areas. And I really do believe that we're kind of realizing that that that's all a myth and that really you can be a playwright and be in Mississippi. 
you know, you can be a screenwriter and you can be, you know, based really anywhere. Um, you know, the opportunities are 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 in every region. Now, there there aren't many uh, here in Mississippi, but, you know, there's a way to get connected and there's a way to be based in Mississippi as um, a writer and and be able to have opportunities elsewhere, which is why we submit so much. We submit our work so much in our department. You know, you mentioned uh, technology, and um, now that we have worldwide connections, you know, back around 2003, you know, we had email. We had a little bit of a little bit of internet here and there, but we didn't have the social connection that we have now, uh, reaching. Uh, people from all over the world so mm-hmm. what a great way to distribute your work yes uh, I agree. you know and a lot faster uh, for, and you can get more recognized of course now that the market's open mm-hmm. worldwide you're competing against people from all over so mm-hmm. uh, so you know you kind of have to stand out with a kind of a unique piece of artwork exactly. uh, even coming from mississippi and yeah. so so your time at um at the university of arkansas uh, is really impressive so you you graduated from the uh, program there, and I'm hearing that you taught there for a while. Yeah, I was offered to uh, to stick around, and I, uh, I I certainly obliged. I I wanted to get more experience teaching at the college level, and another great thing about teaching at the college level is that um, you know there's this this expectation to research, and it, as a writer, I love to research. So the fact that playwriting um and researching was a part of my job it was amazing um I also love culture and I love diversity and um I wanted I spent seven years uh teaching at uh the U of A in Fayetteville and um you know we just as a my I began my family and um we ended up uh transitioning to Charleston South Carolina um, and I taught there for a year. And um, as our family continued to grow and we uh, wanted to be a little closer to our parents and uh, we wanted our children to kind of know their family more. Um, my husband and I decided that it was time for us to kind of uh, redirect ourselves uh, back south. And um, we we ended up um, moving back to Mississippi in uh 2015 and uh we started in the um pine belt we lived on the piney woods uh campus for uh a year and i taught secondary residential uh for the first time and i said i kind of like secondary residential and um I was like, I, I really needed this break from um, from from teaching at the college level. And I really wanted to. I was really and I still am so very um, excited about teaching kids that remind me of myself. Um, and I was, you know, that really creative kid from the South, uh, really just begging for like the space to be creative and really looking, you know, desperate for those opportunities and to be able to interact with kids that reminded me of that, what that was like, it really did, um, inspire me and, um, it, it reignited something in me that I felt that I was losing. So um, I, the move back home is something that I, 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 I'm really grateful for. Um, 
but yeah, after uh, uh, after Piney Woods, um, I found out that there was a literary arts instructor position available uh, at MSA, and I remembered MSA from when I was a teenager. Um, I want to say that maybe it had when I graduated, you know, it was still like very new, if not just opening. Um, and, you know, I, I, I don't even know if the if the literary program had been established. But anyway, I, I was I was very much aware of MSA as a teenager uh, because my dad was um, was had a contract with getting the school ready. So I, I was familiar with it. It seemed like it was like that art school that would have been that it would have been really cool that I attended. So I feel like it came full circle for me to be able to finally, you know, make my way to MSA uh, in my adulthood. Um, so it was really cool. It's really cool how things come full circle. Um, my mom was considering um, letting us attend Piney Woods when I was a kid. And um, that that didn't manifest, but it did later in my life. And I was able to teach there, um, you know, that it it came up very briefly about, you know, what if um, I was able to come to MSA as a teenager and it didn't manifest then. But, you know, in my adulthood, it did. It's just really cool how things sort of come full circle. And I think my coming back to Mississippi really is an example of that. You know, I was talking to someone just the other day how we're placed in different places in mm -hmm. our life, you know, at certain times, mm -hmm. and not everything goes our way like we want it to be. Right. Uh, but, um, you know, eventually it comes around to full circle and is actually probably better than you ever expected. What are some of the new, um, the new things that you've brought to the program, and how are your students doing in the classes this year? They're amazing. Um, I love the students, uh, and they're very committed to becoming stronger writers. You know, they're um, they're not just here because you know they got here and they ex expect for things to, and they expect for their writing uh, to to be the same. You know, they're all looking for growth, and that's rare. It's rare. Uh, usually, you know, you find the student that can you know, generate their work and they're like, I'm done. But you to be able to work with people that are, you know, willing to uh, take their work through a process to make it better is, is amazing. It's great. Um, so I love the artistic discipline that the students have. Um, they're very creative. They're all very unique. And one of my goals is to make sure that they stay unique. I want, uh, you know, one of the things I have realized is that, um, and that's just in my, in my personal experience in writing and where I have been able to see my work realized and just being in the, in settings with other writers, with critics, with, um, with professionals in the field. Um, when it comes down to it, you're, your instincts, your your natural instincts to the page are typically the ones that work. And when you try to, you know, take on other styles and voices and when you try to do things that don't really come naturally to you, um, you're actually, you know, like people can tell, you know, other artists or critics, people with that critical eye, like they can tell that you're not being yourself on the page. Uh, 
And um, sometimes you'll get called on that, you know, if you if you stay in it long enough. But um, we do kind of put on airs as, as writers and it takes us it seems like it takes us a while to really kind of write naturally you know and i mean knowing your craft is important you 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 should know your craft there are things that you can you know employ that make that will make your writing better uh for whatever the subject matter may be but um but my goal is to make sure that they don't lose their natural voice mm-hmm. and what is what is inherent in them you know i, I think a lot of a lot of times you can hear the teacher, uh, you can hear the mentor in the work, but that's not what I, that's not my angle. I don't want their work to be a reflection of me. I just want them to produce the strongest version of their work. And I do want them to preserve their voice and, and, and voice is such a big thing. You know, it's what you identify with. And I don't want them to lose their identity in their in in their process and in their writing because they're, you know, trying to be something that they're not. So that is really like that's my ultimate goal um, here at the at MSA. And, um, you know, ultimately, I think that's what people will hear that they really will not hear. Um, We have 21 writers and. None of them sound the same. You can tell, like, you can tell whose work it is, mm-hmm. you know. You also mentioned um, other things that, that we're doing, too. And and just speaking of today's society, I'm just I'm kind of picking that back up. But um, it used to be that if you were a writer, your goal was to publish a book, you know. And there it seemed like it were maybe one or two things that that your writing could lead you to. But... In today's society, and and also something that we want to introduce them to when right here uh, at MSA, uh, young writers, we want them to know that there are so many avenues now. There are many different avenues now, which is why we've introduced them to podcasting and blogging, and um, and also a way of giving criticism. You know, there was also a very traditional way that people gave feedback. And, you know, there are other ways, you know, there are other methods available to us to give more critical, um, constructive criticism. And it works. It works. I mean, there's so many people that are suffering from, you know, you know, mental health and no one, you know, m- can mentally, you know, afford to you know have their their work demeaned because somebody else doesn't understand it so cultivating the understanding about another person's work before you give insight Mm -hmm. is really you know that's a thing like we can do that now Mm -hmm. we can we can really do that now we can have that level of sensitivity you know laced within our 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 criticism so a lot has evolved um you know and 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 a lot of people say that you know Mississippi you know hasn't caught up, but I really think that MSA is is really like uh, MSA is 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 really kind of progress. Like if anything about this state 
is progressive. I think that we could probably look at MSA and and see some of the things that we're doing and we could really, you know, you know, be we could be a model. Uh, we could really be a model for, you know, how to think and um, how to uh, empathize with one another and make real connections with other people and connect with um, with other places in our nation. So um, so technology, uh, while it, it has taken away our ability to do a couple things, it, it really is providing a lot of resources and opportunities for uh, for writers, uh, especially, especially for writers. You know, in a traditional high school, there's really not enough time to experiment. And I like to think of Mississippi School of the Arts as a um, place where you can experiment. How does, has blogging changed uh, your classroom? Uh, I know that the students um, more than likely have never done it before, at least in a classroom setting. Mm -hmm. Some of them have uh, personally. But uh, how has that changed your classroom setting? Um, it really helps to build community. And so much of what we do as writers is done in isolation that any opportunity we can get to to connect and to, you know, uh, to 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 build our community, um, you know, is a, it's a great opportunity to do that. And we get that a lot when we are engaged in workshop and when we blog um, juniors and seniors have different um, blogging expectations. But um, particularly in your junior year is when, you know, you really find yourself building community through through the uh, the world of blogging. Um, everyone uh, it, it is it is also an educational um, opportunity for the students because, you know, blogging, there is an art to blogging um, and the students have to learn and cultivate the art of blogging. Uh, learning what makes it a blog um, and not anything else. So um, it has definitely helped us to build community. Um, a lot of a lot of traditional writers um, discount blogging a lot, and uh, and some people relegate it to something that is done in journalism. But uh, it's really you know first person writing, and um, and we get a lot out of it. We really do get a lot out of it. Um, it's a space where we where we share. Um, it's also a space where information is passed. We recently had a junior uh, that blogged um, and provided her peers with uh, submission links, you know, uh, ways that they could submit their work. So they're so busy and immersed in, you know, meeting writing goals um, that sometimes blogging helps them to kind of you know, um, be, uh, be personable, um, and reconnect with one another when they've been so immersed in their writing projects. So it's a great outlet. It's a great outlet. Um, and I hope that it's something that, uh, that will be, you know, can, you know, something that will be continued and, 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 uh, repurposed once, you know, blogging becomes something else. Uh, a lot of students also do repurpose their work from blogging. Like we've had students that have blogged about something and then they will like pull it from the blog world and kind of shape it up and it can become something else. It can become a part of their writing sample portfolio. It can be something that they submit uh, elsewhere. So there's never like a, a blog that was like a waste, you know, it's either, you know, they were, you know, uh, 
it was their outlet in the moment or it was actually a space where they were still doing some serious writing and it ended up being something that they repurposed for later. So it's 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 actually, you know, it has a lot of benefits. Um but it, it's that one thing that a lot of writers were uh were hesitant to get into. But it also builds stamina. You know, it build, they have to do it weekly. Uh as juniors they blog weekly. So it, it it helps them to, you know, get over the notion that they don't have anything to write about. Mm-hmm. So they're building their stamina through blogging. You know, and I think that um, also allows them to have more exposure to, um, to yeah. you know, to the world, um, to, to make themselves known. Uh, so if I'm blogging about uh, a certain topic, mm-hmm. you know, and once you have a presence out there on the Internet, people are going to search for you. Mm-hmm. And so... Uh, even, um, you know, I've logged into our blogging system and looked at the stats and have seen uh, certain writers uh, being uh, searched a lot. Mm-hmm. You know, and I, I think when they, again, when they establish their presence on the Internet and they write a good piece and then it gets, you know, shared so many times on Facebook and right. on Twitter Mm-hmm. And uh, they kind of establish that presence for them. And so it becomes a little easier to make themselves known yeah. and to get more contact. So I can see where blogging can definitely help them. A lot of people use blogging to promote products. Um, they write about, um, you know, personal things uh, in their life, um, you know, growing up and, uh, or, or just, you know, whatever the topic may be. Mm-hmm. Uh, one thing I, th- I think we don't stress enough is, you know, how do you gain financially from something like this? Uh, and it doesn't have yeah. to be, um, you know, something where you're making six figures or whatever. I mean, there of course, there are bloggers out there who mm-hmm. make that serious yeah. kind of money. Yeah. Uh, that's not an overnight process. It is. It may, um, the, it's a submission. Mm-hmm. Uh, the way you can submit your fiction, your poetry, your plays, you can also, you know, submit a blog. And like you said, it may not be that it may not be n- enough for to make a salary, but it could pay a bill or two. Yes. Uh-huh. And it could also just kind of be, you know, that that uh, that that money that uh, that you re kind of reinvest in yourself. You know, I know someone that was using their uh, their blog stipends because they they uh, were blogging for this this online thing and. Um, they were using that money to put into their their publication project, you mm-hmm. know. So I mean, it is it, it. There is a way that you can, you know, generate, you know, uh, 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 income, some revenue. Huh? Yeah, you can generate some revenue from blogging. There's always the perception that you know you can't make money in the arts, and, and I think it comes back to the one thing that we learn in the arts, which we kind of forget about, which is creativity. Mm-hmm. So if we can be creative and innovative about, you know, how we uh, pursue opportunities or how we uh, repurpose our work or how we uh, collaborate, like the collaborative projects that we do, uh, making a living in the arts is is so much a, a creative and critical thinking exercise. And and there are also some things that, you know, you just land. You can land a great gig, like going back to the, the, I was a college professor, but my duty was to write and research, mm-hmm. you know, and, you know, you, you have a salary for that, you know, mm-hmm. right now, um, I'm, I, I, I don't have as much time to write, 
um and that could also be a family thing but uh but still i am inspired daily mm-hmm. you know so you just have to be very creative about what what a profession is and and that has also changed so much like the like uh, traditional jobs you know and not just for the arts but for a lot of fields uh, it, it's not it's not as traditional um not a lot of people are wanting to climb the ladder the corporate ladder anymore either a lot mm-hmm. of people are kind of looking to make a pivot move and 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 try different things and people are constantly you know creating businesses and nonprofit organizations so it's the the sky is really you know just sort of open to all of us as artists it really is well thank you very much for uh joining us today uh i know we uh we've talked for quite a while and uh, and uh we've got a few uh recordings from some of the students who we're going to uh play for our audience and our guests and and let them hear um exactly what they're doing here at in the uh, Literary Arts Department at Mississippi School of the Arts. And so thank you, Clinicia, for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's a great honor. June by Catherine Westbrook. Leah sprinted along the bank of the Fair River, darting through trees and kicking earth up, spraying the sky with her heels. She was slim, lithe, and running from no one, or everyone. She slowed when she spotted a figure by a clearing on the opposite edge of the river. Jacob, she called out, panting. It's 6.30 on a Saturday. What do you think you're doing? Jacob laughed deeply, and the lightness in his throat skipped across the water to Leah. You know, I could ask you the same question. Leah smiled and it warmed the back of her tongue. Practicing for track. Got a few miles in today. I love running. It keeps me in shape. Leah paused and added, You know, you should try it sometime. You're looking a little round from over here. Leah watched as Jacob scooped the river into his fingers and shrugged, walking through the shallow banked water to Leah on the opposite side. She grinned and sprinted into the forest, sifting through the trees like an adder. She loved the hot air, the swelling cicada hums. The stretch in her limbs against the mud and skeletal summer leaves heaved. She was swimming through the foliage with light speed. She knew Jacob was less limber than her, could hear his heavy pants from a hundred yards. She eventually slowed when he called out, I give, I give. She fell back into the world, opting to sit below a water oak and soak in the sun from the spaces between the leaves and the sky. He eventually came jogging up, plopped down beside her and closed his eyes, mouth open and body slightly off-tempo. There was still river on his hands. She smiled. She had exhausted his every effort, and she knew it. I win, she joked, so tell me. What were you doing out here anyway? He smiled through his shaky breathing and kept his eyes closed. A careful grin tugged at his mouth. Fishing. Leah laughed and sank deeper into the ground. Oh, yeah? I don't see a fishing pole. Jacob looked over to Leo and furrowed his brows. Jacob's mouth was carefully set, the rise and fall of his chest rhythmic in in the heavy air. He turned to her. Who said you need supplies to fish? I thought that was common knowledge. I mean, how do you expect to catch anything? Pay close attention. Jacob then reached at the air, scanning the sky for something she couldn't see. Out of nowhere, he struck down an imaginary fish and began tearing into it in his mouth. 
Leo erupted in laughter, and she, he smiled warmly in return. Just like that. The two talked for another thirty minutes of random things, their overdue assignments for class, Jacob's little sister, the difference between dogwoods and pear trees, some are turning into something colder. I hate fall and spring, and especially winter, Leah said, facing the sun. Jacob watched her portrait perspective, the heat giving life to the small of her cheeks. Her ribcage had settled with the ground, curving slightly. She had grown in the last summer, and he didn't think she had realized it yet. She caught him looking and gave him an odd grin. How do you feel? About the seasons? He laughed at such a strange question. I don't feel any way at all, I guess. I just know it's too hot right now. Autumn's what I live for. He started to stand, looking around him at the brightening forest. Now you've messed up my schedule for the day, and I'm wasting precious time here when I could be. He motioned again to the air, catching a monster of an invisible fish. Leah rolled in laughter and stood as well. There was affection here, soft and pulling like quilt thread. Jacob was scanning the forest's horizon line, shifting into leaving. I'll catch you later, she asked, but Jacob had already began sprinting in the opposite direction. Her body hummed, and she ran to catch him. I am, by Maria Sumler. I am intrusive thoughts. I am you in your rawest form. I am raw and real in skin. I am the underlying fear and deep-rooted happiness. I am the veins and the blood, the earth and the dirt, not what glitters, not what is gold. I am sanity, imagination without restraint, visionary, creative. I am the horse with no reins, the bull with no gait. I am emotion, real and raw and wings spread. I am not caged, I am not confined. I am freedom. I do not belong to the world because I am it. I am the wind and the sky, the ocean rising and crashing and shapeless. I am undefined. I am spoken thoughts, abrupt decisions, mindlessness, primal urges. I am butterfly and jaguar, whale and shark. I am life and death, prey and predator. I am fact and opinion. I am complexity and simplicity. I am attractive and repulsive. I am art and science, the good, the bad, everything in between. I am full circle, no beginning, no end, real and raw and old and new. The Life and Death of Ivanov Dandrovsky by Jackson Palmer Ivanov Dandrovsky was a prolific and controversial Russian writer from the 19th century. His most well-known work was the 10,000-page novel The Wounded Sparrow's Cry. Modern critics agreed that it was full of passion and interesting ideas but lacked direction and focus. Dandrovsky was born in a small Russian town in 1822, as a boy, Dandrovsky's mother was killed in an accident, in which a donkey tr pulling a cart trampled her. His father was his town's clockmaker. His shop was very successful and amassed a small fortune for his family. Dandrovsky rejected his father's fortune, saying, Only a fool could find use in keeping track of something as inconsequential as time, and only a whore would take the money of a fool. His sister, who married Sir Nikita Popov and became Katya Popov, was an acclaimed painter noteworthy for her use of bright colors and depiction of vibrant imagery. Dandrovsky rejected his sister's work as well, saying, There is no truth in beauty, and only a fool could find value in lies. His younger brother Vladimir took over his father's clock-making business and ran it until his death when he handed it down to his own daughter and her husband. Ivanov rejected Vladimir for the same reasons he rejected his father. Dandrovsky suffered from dwarfism as well as premature balding as a child and throughout his life. 
In school, he behaved hostilely toward his peers. In response, they bullied him and gave him the name Bok, a Slavic mythical creature similar to an imp or goblin. Dandrovsky found solace in writing that he never could in interpersonal relationships. It was through writing that he began a personal search for truth as he felt that his surroundings were entirely spurious. Dandrovsky considered the career of writing to be genuine because it was the, in because it was the uninhibited expression of true thoughts and feelings through words. He is quoted as having said, Reading the writing of another is the closest one can come to gazing into their soul. As an adult, Androvsky wrote and self-published his first book, In the Maw of the Bear, which received mixed and negative reviews and was called derivative of the works of other authors by many critics. The book was popular enough to support Dandrovsky while he wrote his next work. His follow-up, The Wounded Sparrow's Cry, was his most successful book, despite receiving mostly mixed reviews. Dandrovsky had managed to capture the attention of the Russian literary audience, and anticipation began to grow for the author's next work. In 1857, in Ivanov's Search for Truth, he wrote the story The Potato Farmer and His Wife, about a poor serf family to shine a light on the oppression they suffered. He spent ten years working on this story in an attempt to meet the expectations of the audience he'd built for himself that, after writing The Wounded Sparrow's Cry. Unfortunately, in his descriptions of the potatoes, he referred to them as being, quote, plucked from a bush. Dandrovsky was relentlessly mocked by critics for writing a story about potatoes without knowing how they are grown. One said in his review, Dandrovsky is so far removed from the poverty and squalor he describes that he attempts to raise the potatoes to his own level. Dandrovsky took the harsh criticism to heart. And after hearing the response to his story, he got a room in an inn and a tab. After spending his evening in the inn's tavern, Dandrovsky retreated to his room where he clawed his own eyes out. Dandrovsky's well-being plummeted after losing his vision. He was plunged into a pit of depression and did not fully emerge for the rest of his life. His next book, The Darkness, was released in 1868 to Little Fanfare as an episodic installment in a literary magazine known as Novea Story, where it was published alongside the works of amateur writers. Critics refer to the book as, quote, a tedious exercise in unrelenting monotony, misery, and self-pity. In 1873, Dandrovsky published an article called The Will of the Iron Hammer, the article did not receive much attention, critical or public. Aside from that of the government, who sent Dandrovsky to a penal colony for anti-government sentiments that they believed were present in the article. In 1885, Dandrovsky was released. Without a job, a home, or his vision, he quickly fell into poverty. While living on the streets of a small town in eastern Russia, Dandrovsky managed to write his final book, The Broken Hand of God. The book never made it to publication, as Dandrovsky famously traded his manuscript for a meal. The plot is unknown, and the book is considered lost. No one is sure of what became of Dandrovsky after this. There are some accounts of him hissing at passerby, trying to help him, from an alleyway in which he was living. It is assumed that he died in the winter of 1889 of either hypothermia or starvation. All I understand is that I don't understand, by Madison Cox. One. I fear that I am running out of stories to tell. The feeling bubbles up from the bottom of my stomach, words sitting and waiting to fall out and be caught by paper nets. It bubbles into my throat, crawling its way backwards into my mouth and down through my arms. I feel the tingle in my fingertips against the barrels of colored pens, a nervous energy. It sits on my tongue, hidden poised between my teeth. I choke on it, choke on all the words waiting to spill out. I'm drowning in the things I have left to say. My body is overflowing with words I haven't yet figured out how to write. All of these words hiding somewhere inside me and nothing to show for it. I find myself stealing other people's words in the hopes of turning them into my own. 
desperate to at least have something to say. I've become a thief of my art. Nothing I say belongs to me. Two. I've had that thick, heavy, about-to-cry feeling in the back of my throat for about four days now, but it still won't budge. It's hard to swallow around the feeling, so I haven't been eating much either. I still make myself eat, only because I know not eating is worse. The feeling remains. Three. There are clothes sitting on my dresser that I've been meaning to put away properly, but I let them sit and wrinkle. I see them out of the corner of my eye when I'm sitting at my desk, doing everything but what matters. They want me to hang them, to fold them, to put them where they belong. My brain says I should probably do it. It calls to my body to move, but the signal gets cut off every time. I think I need to get a new line. Four. Last week was really good. Maybe not really good, but I know it didn't feel like this. I got a lot of really good important things done, even though it felt super busy, but it was the good kind of busy. I don't know what happened between now and then. Five. I don't handle disappointment very well, just like I don't like the feeling of disappointing others. I don't know where either of them came from. It's really easy to paint things perfectly in my head, even with things I know are never going to happen. I'm a bit of a romantic, or maybe more of an idealist. I do the same thing in the opposite direction, too, always making mountains out of molehills. Things just get really overwhelming sometimes, but I think I'm what makes them that way. Six. It feels like everything makes sense to everyone but me. Physics is getting really confusing lately. I haven't done very well in the last two tests, and I don't feel good about it. Other people have their stuff together, or at least they're really good at faking it. They don't seem to worry about things the same way I do. I try to make to-do lists, but the words read like nonsense. The things all run together in my head, and I worry that I'm going to fall behind soon, even further than I feel already. 7. It's really weird how people try to find their way back into your life when you're in the process of getting them out. Maybe that's just a me thing. It's been nearly a year since we last spoke, and I've been really proud of myself. I think that's the longest it's ever been. He's starting to find his way back in, though, and I could have sworn I changed the locks. I've started checking his Spotify history again, and it feels like a relapse. Although I do suppose that's what it is. Seeing his face is really weird, because I can't remember the voice that comes from it anymore. Everything fell apart between us, and I go back and forth between blaming him and myself. Sometimes it feels like it was for the best, but I still have to stop myself from trying to start it all over again. I still wonder if I come to mind when he hears all the different songs we introduced each other to. I've gotten better at dissociating him from them, but the Beatles will always sting more than they did before. 8. Sometimes I catch glimpses of myself in reflections of windows and metal, and I actually look my age. For just a few shiny little moments, my insides match my outsides the way I've been waiting for them to. This strange feeling of calmness washes over me in these glances, almost like looking into the future and seeing a version of myself who isn't so worried anymore. She looks different on the other side. Not really happy, but at least content. I think I will know her one day, or at least I hope I will. Life will figure itself out eventually, but right now it feels like drowning. I know I just have to wait it out, just have to wait for the tide to wash over me, and then I will be clean. 
the heavy feeling in my throat will wash away, taking everything else with it. All I understand is that I don't understand. I'm just waiting for everything to start making sense again.